I've been preaching a series called Shipwreck, and what we've done in this is we've looked at Paul's whole journey uh, to the island of Malta and to Rome and how he went through a shipwreck, literal shipwreck, right? So in Acts chapter 27, he goes to trial. He ends up in Jerusalem, and he starts speaking before this crowd, and they didn't like what he was saying, so they turned into an angry mob. They started beating him. He was rescued out of that mob. Then he asked, hey, 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 let me have a chance to speak to them. And he goes out and starts speaking to this crowd, then eventually appears before the Jewish Sanhedrin, then appears before Felix, Festus, and King Agrippa. And so all along the way, God was working a plan to get him to Rome. Rome was his heart's desire. He said at one point, I'm bound in the Spirit. I go to Jerusalem bound in the Spirit. And in every town he went in, he said the prophetic word was, if you go, bad things are going to happen to you. Well, those prophetic words came true. Because when he went there, he was imprisoned and eventually uh, made his way on a, on a ship, probably carrying grain. An Alexandrian ship headed for Rome, but they sailed in bad weather. They ended up in a nor'easter that blew the ship all to pieces. He told them not to sail, but they ignored him. Got in the storm, and we talked last week about how to survive a storm, and how Paul got in the middle of that storm, and he really became the encouraging guy. He was the guy telling them, let's keep it together. God sent an angel, stood by me and told me what was going to happen. We're all going to be all right, but we got to keep it together and got to keep moving. Then he encouraged them to eat, take care. And he was the man. He became the man. And he was the guy they wouldn't listen to at the beginning of the voyage. And now by the end of the voyage, the Roman centurion on board is doing everything he can to save Paul's life because he sees how valuable this guy is. So they, they get, they're shipwrecked, but all of them survived. All 276 passengers, some could swim, others floated in on boards and pieces. But nonetheless, they made it to shore and they end up on the island of Malta, and that's where we're going to pick up the story, Acts chapter 28. Now when they had escaped, they found out that the island was called Malta. And the natives showed us unusual kindness, for they had kindled a fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. Now, some commentators say this probably wasn't poisonous. I think some of them are biased against miracles. So uh, when you look at the original Greek term, it is used of poisonous snakes. So when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer, whom though he has escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow to live. So in ancient Greek mythology, if you had escaped the sea... You were considered favored by the gods. All you have to do is read Homer's Odyssey and Iliad. If he made it through the sea, he must be favored by the gods. But now since this poisonous snake has grabbed hold of his hand, he must be a murderer. And justice is not allowing him to live. You know, justice here is decay in the original language, and it, is a, uh, it was a, a Roman god. So they would have worshipped justice. And so justice was not allowing Paul to live because there was some retribution. Even though they didn't have a Christian understanding or a Jewish understanding of morality, they had some sense of morality. Because most cultures in the world deal with 
uh, sin or deal with the wrongs in life in some manner. If you look at the uh, Eastern, you know, Far Eastern religions or like the uh, Hindu faith, you know, they deal with bad through karma and reincarnation. So uh, they believe that all bad will be dealt with. It's kind of adding up in your life. And if you do a lot of bad, you're coming back through this thing again, brother. Maybe as grandma's cat or... No, I don't, I don't mean be making fun of it. But honestly, they do, that's, their, that's their system of dealing with retribution and wrong. But Christians don't believe in karma, Right? pastored in northern Virginia and I was at a restaurant one day and a young man came up to us and he was our waiter and my friend said uh, this guy's a preacher he was just having fun with me you know so uh, he said you're a preacher what kind of preacher are you and I said well you know I I pastor a Pentecostal church I have to say it sometimes <laughs> and he said well Catholic I know and Protestant I know but I've never heard of Pentecostal thought, okay. He said, but I believe in God and I believe in karma. I thought, boy, is this guy messed up. Uh, I I believe in God. I have a Christian worldview, but I believe, so karma has no place in the Christian worldview. Sorry, I didn't mean to get on this this morning, but each culture kind of has its own way of dealing with wrong and morality. So the ancient Greeks believed that, you know, the gods would get you back. They're going to, the gods are going to come and mess with you. All right. They thought maybe Paul is a murderer. But notice what happens next. Verse 5, But he shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. Hello? However, they were expecting that he would swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had looked for a long time and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. In that region, there was an estate of a leading citizen of the island whose name was Publius, who received us and entertained us courteously for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and dysentery. And Paul went into him and prayed and laid his hands on him and healed him. So when this was done, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. Can we say amen? So we've heard a lot of preaching about how to handle a storm and how to make it through the storms of life. And of course, I'm using this whole storm thing as a metaphor. So we've heard a lot of preaching about how to make it through storms, how to deal with storms, but I don't know that I've heard much about what to do after the storm is over. And so this morning, I want to preach just a few minutes on some instructions for us as how to deal with life after a storm is over and after we've made it out, okay? And there's three things here I see in the text that uh, I'm going to use in a metaphorical way of us going through storms because I know some of y'all are walking through storms right now. We buried just uh, me and Mike Henley a day or two ago. We buried a 46-year-old man from our congregation who died, left a beautiful family and kids. And Last week, I helped a friend of mine bury his 43-year-old son. And this coming week, we have another funeral of a precious lady in our church here who passed away of COVID. And so on and on, the story rolls. You know, some of you have been through divorce, you've been through financial problems as a pastor of a church, and, and I've heard about everything you could hear. You know, people walking through 
heartache and walking through terminal illnesses and walking through drug addiction and coming out of prison and blah, blah. So goes life, right? So I've heard it said if you're not in a storm now, you're either coming or going from a storm. I don't know if that's true, but maybe so. You know, we, we face storms in life. So how do we deal with the storm and how do we deal once we get out of it on the other side? Let me give you three things I see from Paul's life here. The first thing we see Paul doing once they land on Malta is he's gathering sticks. Now they had a bonfire going so the people could keep warm in the cold and the rain and there were 276 people on this boat. That's a big bonfire. It's like a few years ago our youth had a bonfire out back and I saw a massive log sitting on that bonfire and I thought, boys, this ain't going to work out. And sure enough, the fire department was called. So goes the youth bonfire. Anyhow, that was a big bonfire to keep 276 people warm. And then what's Paul doing? He's out gathering sticks. I don't know if he's told to do this, but I'm just assuming he's doing it out of his own goodwill. He, and he's the apostle. He's the man of God. He's the one who had the visitation from the angel. He's the one that could be commanding other people what to do on the island, but he doesn't do that. And I'll put, I'm going to put it this way. He keeps doing life. He just does He just keeps doing life. In the midst of gathering sticks, this snake latches onto him and he shakes it off and he really fulfills Scripture. Look at Luke 10, 19. Jesus said, you'll tread on serpents and scorpions. Now we know that's probably metaphor for demonic spirits, but let's look at it in the, in the real. Let's, let's just interpret it literally. He says in Mark 16, you shall take up serpents. Hallelujah. And I'm from that part of the country. Take up serpents. But I believe when he meant take up serpents, I don't think he, he means we should take them up just to test our faith, but I think it means exactly what this is. If we walk into that situation, God can give us supernatural protection. One of my mentors in life was Dr. Elias Malky, who was the first man to preach the gospel in Arabic language on television. He started the Middle Eastern Broadcasting Network years ago with Pat Robertson, and he was just a, a giant in the faith. He had millions of people who accepted Christ by watching him on television. And they would often, he would tell them, touch the television or touch the radio and pray with me as a point of contact. And he received a letter he told me about from a young man from a northern Afri North African country who was Muslim. He watched my friend and he accepted Christ after listening to him preach on TV. And he said, I was kind of nervous, but I went ahead and told my parents that I'd accepted Christ. And my parents being devout Muslims, I didn't know what they would do. So he said a few days had passed or a few weeks had passed and his parents came to him. And his parents said, son, we have also accepted this Jesus as our Savior. They'd become Christians. And then they told him the story. They said, when you told us that you had accepted Jesus as your Savior, we, we discussed it and we decided to kill you. So we poisoned your food and you ate it and nothing happened to you. So we went back and doubled the poison and you ate it, and nothing happened to you, then we said, there must be something to this Jesus. 
And they accepted the Lord. That's a beautiful modern story about how the Bible still works today. Can you shout amen? But Paul went on just doing, let's go pick up sin. He didn't come out of the storm and be like, I'm done. God, why did I have to go through that? Why, did I, why, did, why didn't you send angels and just cruise me along and translate me from this? Why did I have to go? Why did I have to be a slave on that ship or a prisoner? Why did I have to stay for two years in Caesarea in prison? Why have I been beaten? Why have I been left for dead? Why have I been stoned? And why was I mobbed in Jerusalem? Come on. Why? But we don't see him saying these things. He just hopped off on shore, and he's the reason they're alive anyhow, and he just starts doing life again. You see, when we walk through storms, often it wrecks people to such a point they can't get back to doing life as they should. And I'm telling you, we got to get back to do. I'm preaching to Hans this morning, and y'all can listen in, but we got to get back to living life. Amen? You got to get. Some people go through a divorce and never get beyond it. They're still living there, though it happened 25 years ago. You got to let it go and live life. Some people went bankrupt and they can never get over it. It's, they're still living in that defeat and don't have the nerve. Or the, you know, the risk to, to get back in business again. Come on, let it go. Get back. You made it. You came through the storm. Let it go and start living life again. Come on, somebody. Shout hallelujah. The next thing that happens with Paul is he goes to this, I don't know if this guy's a governor of the island, maybe Publius. He's uh, obviously a wealthy guy. He has a large estate, an estate large enough to house 220, 276 people. And they go to his place, and he's treat, they're treated very nicely there. But then immediately Paul realizes, uh-oh, his father is sick of fever and dysentery. So what's Paul do? He goes and he does what he's always been doing. He lays hands on the sick, and God heals that man. That opens up the gospel for the rest of the nation, And then he heals, maybe it's hyperbole used here, but I'm just going to take it at face value, he heals everybody on the island. Now we're having revival on the island. We're never told he preaches, but we know he probably preached because he preached every place else that he went. He's a preacher. Signs follow those who preach. And this tells me not only did he just go about and continue living life, he didn't lose his faith in the storm. He didn't allow the storm to suck the faith right out of his life. But he came out of that still laying hands on the stick, still performing miracles like he had known and experienced before. See, some people come through storms, and on the other side of it, though they make it out of the storm, it re-engineers their faith and their belief system. It like reworks it, it strips it down, and it reworks it sometimes for the bad. Because we go into a storm believing certain things and then the storm kind of messes with our faith because a storm will shake you down to see what you're made of. And then some people come out of that and say, well, I tried the Bible and the Bible doesn't work. I prayed and it didn't work. I prayed for certain things and God didn't answer. God didn't come through. This failed. This I thought this was a vision God had given me and it failed. There, I'm done with it. Maybe there is a God in the big transcendental sense, but that's it. 
I'm not believing any of this stuff anymore. And they allow the storm to strip them of their faith. Don't allow the storm to take the faith that you know and that is in your heart away from you. Don't allow that to happen. We should allow our faith to be built on Scripture and our experience with the Lord, not on circumstances that life throws our way. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 16, Therefore we do not lose heart. Therefore we do not lose heart. Therefore we do not lose heart even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working in us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Storms are temporal. God is eternal. Trials and circumstances are temporary, but your faith is going to last into eternity. So you've got to anchor yourself and hold on to the eternal things when you're walking through trials. Hallelujah. Come on, somebody. You don't want to be like Demas in 2 Timothy chapter 4, whom Paul said, Demas has forsaken me, having loved the present world, and he's departed for Thessalonica. He, he, he took, the, took the hard point and just left at the hard point of life. Don't do that. Don't allow something to strip your faith. You know, uh, I was reading a certain scholar a few years ago, and, and I knew that I had issues with this person, that I didn't agree with all of their brilliant and Ivy League and all this, but I was just like, you know, I'm, I got so sick of reading dry, faithless junk. And sure enough, I read this person's story, and they attended church as a young person and then had a really good friend who died in a car accident. And after that, it shook their faith. And then they went on this journey to try to figure it all out. And I don't know that they ever came back to believing what they once believed as a kid because one of their friends got killed in a car wreck. And I'm not belittling that. That's a terrible thing. But you can't let that destroy your faith, man. So, I, you know, I've talked about my wife a lot, and y'all just got to deal with it. So... You know, Jackie was a, was a faith woman. She was, a, she was one of the greatest women of faith I've ever met in my life and lived it to the T. Um, but when we held her memorial service here, you know, it's almost been two years ago. And we, me, and the, me and my daughters and my sons-in-law, we were ready to come out. We were standing backstage. And, and I looked at the girls and I said, I can't, uh, I can't say much. Tonight. I'm going to greet the crowd and say a few things, but I'm not going to speak. I don't think I can. And the girls looked at me and they said, can we speak? I said, sure, you can speak. And I was like, oh, my gosh. So we, as many of you were here that night, we walked out, and my girls grabbed the microphone, and they said, everything mom believed, we believe. Healing the sick, raising the dead, Holy Ghost, we believe all of it. Amen. And then my Alex said this. She said, I don't understand it all, but I'm just going to rest in the mystery right now. And I was like, I'm done. Drop the mic, go home. I've got my word for, to run on. I don't understand it all, but I'm going to rest in the mystery and I'm believing everything mom believed. So now I see their mom coming out in here. That faith, that fire, that discernment, that Holy Ghost, man, that... And I'm just like, you see this, Jackie? You see these girls? Come on. 
We didn't fail. Yeah, they made it. Oh, hallelujah. Don't allow the storm to take away your faith. Allow the storm to strengthen your faith. Don't allow the storm to take your belief in miracles away. Allow it to put some backbone in you so that you're going to believe harder, preach greater, be stronger, pray more, believe for other people. Allow that storm to do what do what the devil doesn't intend it to do. Allow that storm to be turned around and used for your good. Because God's going to turn everything for our good. Come on. He's going to work His eternal purpose in us so that we might be conformed to the image of His Son. Somebody shout hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Live life and don't allow the storm to take away your faith. The third thing, this is profound, that I see happening here is that eventually then, Paul makes it to Rome. He makes it. Notice verse 11. After three months we sailed in an Alexandrian ship whose figurehead was the twin brothers who were Castor and Pollux, these two twins of Zeus who supposedly helped seamen, and which had wintered on an island and landing in Syracuse, which was on the island of Sicily, we stayed three days. From there, tradition says Paul planted a church, by the way, in three days. From there we circled round and reached Regium, which is the tip of the boot if you look at Italy as a boot. And after one day, the south wind blew, and the next day we came to Puteoli, which is the Bay of Naples. Boom. And from there, we found brethren, were invited to stay for seven days, and then we went toward Rome, the famous Appian Way. He walked all the way to Rome, and he made it. The book ends with him in Rome, under house arrest, in some sort of apartment, I guess, being able to receive guests, and preaching the gospel. So if you look at it, Acts is this beautiful story of chapter 1 with these 11 broken disciples who had lost their Lord, probably trembling in fear, and then they saw the resurrected Jesus and were forever changed. And then in the upper room, they received the Holy Spirit Then they go out and they start fulfilling the command of Jesus to preach this gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other parts of the earth. And then by the end of the book, what began in a po-dump backwoods town of Jerusalem ends in this magnificent city, the greatest city in the ancient world. And now the gospel has made it all the way from the backwoods to the most powerful city in the world, meaning it's a complete story of victory. And I believe Luke intended to end it there as a complete story of victory. And then some scholars have argued, why in the world does it end so abruptly? It just We have Paul there and it ends abruptly. And I don't know, but I like to toy with it. I like to think it ended abruptly because it's never really ended. Maybe the book of Acts ended abruptly because you and I are supposed to take up the mantle and be the next chapter. Maybe it ended abruptly because the miracles have never ceased. The gospels never ceased being preached. Missionary work has never ended. You and I are Acts chapter 29. Still, care. The miracles didn't cease with the apostles and all this bunch of garbage. It's still flowing. Holy Ghost baptism, miracles, signs, wonders, healings, revival, missionary work. Still going on. God is the same God who wrote chapter 1. And that's writing chapter 29 in our lives now. Come on, somebody shout hallelujah. 
So it shows me that in the storm, you've got to believe that God is working His purpose. Even when it's over, He's still working His purpose. Paul went through this and that and all this stuff to get to Rome. And I'm not blaming God for the stuff. God told him what was going to happen if he went that way. The people wouldn't listen to him on the boat. So there's a lot of circumstances that got caught in the whole washing machine of this mix going on. But nonetheless, God was with him all the way through the stuff and brought him out on the other side to his destiny and his purpose. Now we know according to history, this is not Bible, but we know according to history that Paul eventually was caught and was eventually, uh, he, he was eventually killed. He was decapitated by probably under Nero's reign. But, you know, some scholars like F.F. F. Bruce believe he actually made it to Spain and came back. I, don't, I like to kind of believe that. But anyhow, he came back and eventually was killed in Rome. But God accomplished his purpose. We, we don't have record of this, but I kind of believe he did stand before Caesar. Why? Because God told him he was going to. And if God did all the rest of that for him, surely he finished the job and he stood before Caesar, I believe. And he accomplished everything that God had planned for him to accomplish. So even though you've been through the storm, you know, don't, let, don't give that storm too much credit. Let that storm do what it's intended to do. That is, God could take it and work it and be with you through all that stuff to bring you to a destiny that maybe you would not have arrived at had you not walked through that storm. Oh, Lord. There were people in Malta, according to tradition, the church was begun right there with Paul on the island of Malta. Even that bay that they wrecked in is now called the Bay of St. Paul. And so... As we look at it from retrospect, we realize the gospel wouldn't have reached that island as soon as it did had it not been for a storm that no one wanted to walk through. But had it not been for that, the gospel wouldn't have reached that island as soon as it did. Had it not been for some of the stuff you and I have walked through. Some of the things wouldn't have happened that's happened and God wouldn't have built in us some of the stuff that He's put in us now. Hallelujah. Come on, just throw your hand up and say, God, I thank you. Not for the storm, but I thank you in the midst of the storm. You came and you saw me through to the other end. Hallelujah. And now I'm stronger because of it. I have more faith because of it. I have more determination because of it. You know, I've told the church this many times, but I, I went, you know, I'm not a mechanic, but I learned just out of necessity how to work on vehicles through the years. And so I would go to big lots when I needed tools. Because they were cheap. And sometimes they fit perfectly, and other times they didn't fit that perfectly. A 10 millimeter might have not been totally a 10 millimeter. I don't know. They were made mostly in China. Yes, I said it. And they were spray painted. Because when you worked long enough with them, the paint started to flake off of them. And I don't know if you guys like Craftsman. I, was, I never bought anything like Snap-on. I'm not at that level at all. But I bought some Craftsman tools and I got the liking them, man. Because on the side it said they were forged. 
means they weren't spray painted. They'd been some through, they'd been through some sort of firing process. And out of the fire, they had developed a toughness that could endure the pressure once you started pulling on it. And I'm telling you, once you've been through something, if you've remained faithful and let God work in you what He wants to work in you, you developed a toughness that you can withstand some stuff. And enough of us in here have gray hair that you've been through some stuff. Hallelujah. And you might as well lift your hands and thank God that you made it and you're the better because of it. You know, I've been, over the past several years, I've been flying a lot and for whatever revivals or denominational meetings or whatever. And I can't get this out of my mind, but I heard some old timer say, you know, when I climb on a plane, <laughs> I like to peek through that up to where the pilot is, and I'm comforted if I see a little snow on the roof. And we know there's great pilots, young and old. But when you're 20,000 feet, and anything mechanical has the potential of breaking down, and you're going through turbulence, and I've had planes drop like shwoom, I'm like, I hope that man up there has been through something before. I hope this isn't his first time in the air. And we know that's, they don't do that, I don't think. <laughs> but anyhow, I hope that's not his first time around this rodeo. I hope he's been here before. Hallelujah. Some of y'all been through it before. And you're living proof that God is the same God He said He was in the Bible. You've made it, hallelujah, and now you can help some other people. You can come along and say, hey bud, I've been right where you've been. And I tell you what, God's going to be faithful to you and God's going to bring you through it just like He brought me through it. Hallelujah. There were many nights I didn't think I was going to make it, but God showed up and gave me His grace and He's going to do the same for you. You can make it. You can do it. Come on somebody, give Him a shout, hallelujah. Oh, somebody shout hallelujah. Let me read you a couple things and we're going to pray here. This is one of the most famous passages in the New Testament and, and many of you know it by heart, but I just want you to hear it afresh in this context. God is working in you His perfect will. Let Him work, man. Let Him work. Come through the storm and know that there's a purpose and that God's working everything out. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's where He's trying to get us to, folks, to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's the goal, right? That He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these also He called. Whom He called, there He also justified. And whom He justified, there He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Then He comes on down and says, Who shall bring charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is He who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God? Who also makes intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things... We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. 
Paul is saying, everything I've been through is conforming me to the image of His Son, and I've realized that I'm more than a conqueror through everything I've been through. Y'all don't shout, I'm going to shout all by myself. One more thing i got to show you, and we're going to pray. The book of Job was a real comfort to me when I lost my wife. Y'all know I taught through it, preached through it. And here's what Job said. It's so, it's so powerful. Job had, Job had we, we've been 41 chapters now in the book of Job. 40 or 39 of those is Job and his friends trying to figure out what happened to him. Why did he go through the loss? He lost his family, lost his livestock, he lost his wealth, he lost, every, lost his reputation. Everything's obliterated. Why did he do that? And they're all arguing about the different reasons why, and he's demanding an audience with God and a courtroom with God and blah, 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 blah. blah. <laughs> then in the end, God shows up. And you know what? You, you, know, you know how God answered their questions? He didn't. He didn't answer one thing that Job or his friends were asking. All God did was He showed up and He put Job's problem into perspective. He put Job's problem into an eternal perspective. And and not downplaying what happened to Job, but God shows up and it's like, okay, you're so smart. You've been through so much. Why don't you sit back and let me talk for a minute? Where were you when I created everything, bro? And I think what he's telling what he's telling Job is this. And it's hard to hear, but I know what I'm doing in running the universe. I've been doing it for a while. It's not your job to do my job. It's not your job to figure out my job. It's your job to trust me through everything you've walked through and trust the fact that I am in control of everything. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Man, that'll set you free. Come on, somebody. Come on, lift your hand and say, thank God you're in control, Jesus. And then here's what Job says in verse chapter 42. He says, he answered and he says, I know. Oh God, I know you can do everything. And that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You ask, who is this who counsels, who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. He repents. Not, God said he didn't say anything wrong, but he, he repents of this attitude he had or this understanding he had that was skewed. And he repents of it. And he says these words. He said... There were things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you, you'll answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now my eye sees you, and I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. He's saying, Lord, I had a theoretical knowledge. I understood about you by the hearing of my ear. But now that I've walked through what I've walked through and you've appeared to me, now I've seen you. And maybe I'm making more of the text than there, but let me, let me do it. He now takes theoretical knowledge and it becomes practical knowledge. 
Now he's lived it, and he's now seen God like he's never seen God before. Let me tell you, we can preach, and we can teach, and we can read all the best books, and we can go get degrees and all that, but until you've walked the walk, and until you've been through it, you really don't know it. Because knowing in the Hebrew sense is to experience. Once you've experienced it, it there's something else that happens. I'm not... I'm not thankful for what I went through, but I'm thankful that God brought me through what I went through. So back in September, I was at this big, huge pastor's conference with Kent Christmas, and I just felt, I just felt different. I, I, all the rest of the guests ate, and I stayed in my room, and I prayed. And that morning, I went down, and I took the pulpit, and I preached. And I'm telling you, no glory to Hans whatsoever, but there was such a presence of the Lord that came into that place. It was thick. And I stepped off the platform, and Kent looked at me, and he said, I've never heard you preach like this. And I said, because I lost intimidation. Because since I've been through what I went through, some stuff died in me. Some stuff that needed to die. And I think if we let the storm have the best out of us, it'll kill in us some things that need to be killed. Maybe some pride needs to be destroyed. Maybe there's some intimidation or fear that needs to be taken out of you. Maybe there's some trust issues. You need to trust God that He can do everything that He said He's going to do. And you're going to make it out of this storm, and on the other side of it, you're going to thank God for everything He's brought you through. And we're going to look back, and hindsight is twenty twenty. You know, as I said, we're going to look back and say, God, I, did, I didn't know you were with me at every moment. I knew it theoretically, but now I see. <laughs> I see how you were with me in every moment and every turn and every day and every night. God, you were there holding me and carrying me and getting me through this whole thing. I know I've preached out of my heart today, and I don't mean to continually do that, but this, we had to, some of y'all walk in this. Some of you are walking through stuff. And I'm going to tell you, there's a, there's a, we used to sing it in the Holiness Church, there's a bright light somewhere. There's an end, there's, a, there's an end to this tunnel. And you're coming out. And on the other side, you're going to thank God that He's accomplished in you His purposes. That He's accomplishing in you everything He wants to do in you. Thank you so much for joining us online. And I hope the message was a real blessing to you. You know, eternity is a real thing. You're going to spend eternity somewhere. According to the scriptures, you spend eternity in one of two places. First of all, heaven. Paul said to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. Or number two, in hell. Uh, Jesus talked about the rich man who went to hell and was in great torment. He was begging Abraham to send someone, a messenger, to tell his family. Well, listen. You're hearing the message today, eternity is real, and you're going to spend it in one of two places. So why don't let's decide right now, me and you, that you're going to spend it in heaven. How do you do that? You accept Jesus into your heart. Open up your heart and say, Lord, come in. Cleanse me of all sin. I accept you as my Lord and take the throne of my life as yours. Okay? So let's pray right now. Just pray with me right where you are. Just repeat this. Father in heaven. I, I remove myself from the throne of my heart. And Jesus, I invite you to sit on the throne of my heart. Forgive me of all sin. Wash me in your precious blood. And I accept your sacrifice for me. And I thank you, Lord. 
for cleansing me, for saving me, and for accepting me. In Jesus' name I pray. Can you say amen right where you're at? Hey, thank you for joining us. And please come back, get in, get in the Word, get in the flow of the Spirit. And uh, we're just blessed to have you with us and look forward to seeing you the next time.